Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to elevating conversations about biomarker testing to improve outcomes for advanced cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Howard Hoxter, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, it's a conversation about texting as a way to follow up with breast cancer patients with Dr. Sarah Mugalian. Dr. Mugalian is an assistant professor of medicine and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Well, I'm very interested, and I'm sure many, especially of our younger generation of listeners, will be very interested to see how we can treat breast cancer through texting, because that sounds better than chemo. But before we get to that, uh, I'm sure that's not really what we're going to be talking about. Uh, How did you get interested in breast cancer in particular? Well, I've always had an interest in women's health. And uh, when I decided during my training that I wanted to pursue a career in oncology, it seemed a natural fit. Um, I think I really love taking care of women. I love taking care of women across the spectrum of of breast cancer. and it's it's just brought me a lot of career satisfaction. Hmm. I would point out, if I'm not mistaken, that some people with breast cancer are men, no? That is a good point. Do you um, refuse to see them? No. <laughs> no, we do have a, a fair number of men in our practice. Uh, I take care of a couple of them. Um, and you're right to remind me that men do, in fact, get breast cancer. But, but it's a really small proportion. It is right? a small proportion. Yeah. So uh, breast cancer awareness makes me think of prevention and early identification or early diagnosis? Is that what we should be thinking about on Breast Cancer Awareness Month? Well, I think Breast Cancer Awareness Month is it, it's a very complicated topic. Um, not the Awareness Month itself, but prevention and thinking about all aspects of breast cancer. So prevention um, is, is thought to be uh, really around mammograms um, and when we should start having mammograms and when, how often we should have mammograms. And if you look back at all of the different uh, guidelines from various societies, the range is from you should start having a mammogram at age 40 to age 45 to age 50. You should have it annually. You should have it every other year. Seems like there's always coming up with a new set. It's It's always, it, it, it really depends on who you're asking. And For the purposes of the average woman, the United States Preventative Task Force, uh, Preventative Services Task Force, the USPSTF, recommends that women start having mammograms at age 50 and getting mammograms every other year. Um, The American Cancer Society, on on the other hand, recommends earlier than that in getting annual mammograms. And imaging societies, radiologic societies, recommend 
uh, similar early and often. Um, so it's <laughs> we very won't discuss confusing. any financial. We're not going to talk about any biases there. that might be <laughs> um, might be around. But I think it's worth a conversation with your physician to understand what is your overall risk of developing breast cancer. Understand your family history and any other risk factors that you might have for developing breast cancer to develop the right uh, the right uh, screening. Uh, opportunity for you. Now, when I was training, uh, which was a long time ago, uh, both as a person in internal medicine and subsequently in medical oncology, the emphasis really was on teaching young women at their earliest gynecological encounters to start doing breast self-exam. Is this kind of by the wayside, like you're not really, it's like what's the point until you're 40 or 50? Well, I think breast exams have really never been shown to to uh, improve diagnosis of cancer. I think it's important that women be aware of their breasts and know what their breasts feel like. And I know that sounds a little bit silly, but any change is worth a visit to your physician to, to talk about what that change is. Um, but in terms of doing a, a monthly self-exam, we don't generally recommend that. So that I'm just dating myself. You're dating yourself. Okay. Well, I, I deserve it. I've got oh, enough well. gray hairs to date myself. <laughs> <laughs> but it's well-intentioned, right? It, it is. Yeah. And, and what about um, you know women who classically we were taught you know had cystic breasts or fibrocystic diseases? That's still a that's still a thing. That's still a thing. Okay. <laughs> it's still a thing, and it and makes those people. It's harder both diagnostically. Yeah, it's right. it is harder. Um, cystic breasts or dense breasts. Um, sometimes mammograms can be challenging in this population because um, when you look at a mammogram, breast tissue looks white, and cancer also looks white, or mm. abnormalities look white, and so dense breasts can hide abnormalities on mammogram. And so in the state of Connecticut, women who have dense breasts uh, can have additional imaging such as ultrasounds or MRIs to evaluate the density of their breasts and mm. to to evaluate for abnormalities. Um, but you're right, fibrocystic breasts can be a challenge both on physical exam when we're when we're examining a breast and on radiologic exam um, because lumpy, bumpy breasts can feel abnormal. That's why it's important that you know what what your breasts feel like. Yeah. So, um, you know, it seems to me still uh, when I interact with the lay public that, you know, women are terrified of breast cancer, right? I mean, absolutely across the board, this is the thing that many women uh Appropriately worry about, I guess. Absolutely, I mean, it's, it's still a, over the lifetime a, a large percent, a reasonable percentage, right? Will One get in breast eight cancer. women. Yeah. So, is there a group of younger women in particular whom we can be very reassuring to who uh, don't have a huge risk, or should everybody just be sort of on the ball? I think that starting at about somewhere between age 40 and 50, and I'm not going to put my my direct number on when when screening should start. It's going to change as you sort of start hitting those benchmarks, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Very close, Steve. Very close. Um, I think that young women in general are at low risk. Um, the the incidence of breast cancer starts to creep upwards when women hit their 40s. But young women are at low risk. It doesn't mean that young women can't get breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we should have a healthy 
caution with any abnormality. Um, and bring that, it to someone's attention. And bring it to right? someone's attention. Gotcha. But I think that your average 25, 30-year-old shouldn't be running around saying, oh, I'm going to, to get breast cancer. I'm, I need to be getting my mammograms at these ages. And it doesn't matter at what age they started menstruating or whether they breastfed or not. These you're you're pointing out some risk factors for breast cancer, um, early uh, onset of menstruation, so early periods, um, lack of pregnancies, lack of breastfeeding. These are risk factors for breast cancer, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if you don't do those things or if you if you did have an early onset of menstruation that. You're really going worry. to get breast cancer. Gotcha. Okay. There are genetic predispositions. You may be familiar with the BRCA mutations. Tell us what that is again. Um, these are abnormalities in someone's DNA, something that they're born with that predisposes men and women to developing certain types of cancers, breast cancer and ovarian cancer being the common ones. You may have heard of Angelina Jolie. I was going to say, isn't that the one that Angelina had? Yeah, she had a BRCA1 mutation and ultimately opted to have bilateral mastectomy. Which she, were prophylactic. She didn't have breast cancer, right? Correct. She, that was she really opted to have both of her breasts removed to reduce the likelihood that she is, develops breast cancer, mm -hmm. which many women with these mutations uh, do opt to have done. Well, so should everyone be screened for these mutations? Um, it's a great question and one that in the, the genetics, uh, with genetics experts, that people are actually thinking about You're, because- I was being kind of facetious. I know, I but it's actually it, something, something that people, huh? maybe not everyone in the population, but everyone with breast cancer. Hmm. Um, this is why it's very important to know what cancers are in your family mm -hmm. and what uh, people in your family have died from, mm -hmm. particularly as it pertains to this conversation, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, prostate cancer, melanoma, pancreatic cancer. All of these cancers can point us toward a genetic predisposition to developing cancer, and it may change ultimately what treatments you have uh, if you are found to have a mutation and develop a cancer or don't or or do have a mutation mm. that predisposes you to one. Um, so I think it's it, it does highlight the importance of knowing your family as as much as you can and talking to your family. Um, I know at least in my family, the older generations, we don't really know what happened to those. They didn't want to talk, they didn't about, want to cancer. talk about it. We hear a lot about female cancers mm -hmm. or cancer of unknown of unknown cause. Um, but it's really important to know what's happened in your family because these genetic predispositions do exist. And if your mom had breast cancer, say, in her 80s or something, is that enough of a family history for you to have your antennas up? It's an important thing to know, but it's probably not indicative of a genetic predisposition. But if she had it in her 40s, you might be more concerned. Correct. So cancer, earlier of uh, earlier onset cancers are more concerning. Cancer itself is a, is a disease of aging. Mm -hmm. And so as we age, we are inherently more at risk of developing breast cancer. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that, that the average young woman of childbearing age should have a regular health follow-up mm -hmm. that we recommend and general understanding of her body, but probably not be unduly concerned. But at some age, whether it's 40 or 50 or something, mammograms should play a role. 
Correct. Okay. And how sensitive and reliable are mammograms? They're very sensitive. Um, and sometimes overly so, particularly when we take into account some of the newer types of, of mammograms, 3D mammograms, um, mammograms with tomography. Um, the, and so oftentimes you see abnormalities on mammogram that then warrant additional follow-up or more frequent imaging or even a biopsy. Mm. So sensitivity of mammograms, while it's likely to find a cancer, it may also find other things that, that put women through a, a lot of additional testing. Which we don't want either for the want. discomfort of the woman and the expense and everything else, right? Yes. And then there are types of cancers uh, that are not readily identifiable by mammograms. In, in breast cancer, lobular cancers tend to kind of infiltrate and tend to go unnoticed on mammograms. That's a certain kind it's of certain, subtype? It's a subtype of cancers. So mm -hmm. you might hear of, of mammographically occult cancers or cancers that weren't seen on an annual mammogram and then pop up um, months later. Yeah, we have a, a wonderful friend uh, who's fortunately quite well right now, um, but who uh, had a history of cystic breasts and was very diligent about reporting changes and having regular mammography and uh, presented with with a, a metastatic breast cancer lesion uh, with, with back pain and she mm -hmm. had a spinal lesion. Mm -hmm. um, despite all that great medical follow-up and, and really intelligent mm -hmm. <laughs> use of the healthcare system in many biopsies. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I don't know what, what her subtype was. Like I say, fortunately, she's, she's doing well many well, years good. later. Yeah. That's good. Knock on wood. So, um, well, you know, what, I, what I'd like to do uh, now uh, is start turning, and, and probably after our break, to uh, what happens when somebody gets a diagnosis. And then, of course, we do want to know all about how texting can cure breast cancer or something like that. Something like that. <laughs> okay. But in the meantime, we're going to have to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about breast cancer with my good friend, Dr. Sarah Mugalian. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working to pioneer targeted lung cancer treatments and advance knowledge of diagnostic testing. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 1,500 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Connecticut this year. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Sarah Mugalian. We've been discussing the field of breast cancer 
and quote, how texting can benefit patients, uh, close quotes. I put that in quotes because Sarah has been chastising me for being setting up too high expectations <laughs> about her uh, really interesting research on texting, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Sarah, uh, thanks so much. In the first half, we, I think, did a really, you did a really nice job of kind of sort of outlining how people, some of the ways that people come to be identified as having breast cancer. And perhaps you can spend a few minutes, uh, you know, sort of like taking us through that really scary thing of what happens when the radiologist calls you or there's a biopsy or you get a biopsy and it's it's breast cancer. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely what most patients feel, just a moment of panic. Um, Is it usually done on the phone, really? I think a lot of the times... I just can't imagine A lot that. of times it's done on the phone. Sometimes in person, if, if uh, an image looks particularly suspicious, people lay the groundwork for a potential cancer diagnosis. But I think oftentimes it is done on the phone. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't um, even imagine getting that call. Well, you could look at it the other way, too, and say... If we called and said we want you to come in, sure, <laughs> Not that might actually is. might actually create more something anxiety. we need to talk about, right? Yes. Mm. Um, so usually the first step is to meet with a breast surgeon. Um, breast surgeons are, are specialty trained surgeons who do uh, a lot of breast specific surgeries. General surgeons can also do breast surgery. So you meet with a surgeon, and and the goal of that visit is to talk about types of surgeries to remove the cancer. Now, for early stage breast cancer, and that's what I'm going to focus on today, um, the mainstay of treatment is surgical removal. And so in many cases, that's the first step. So people have surgery. Depending on the type of surgery, they might also meet with a radiation oncologist. And depending on, on what is found at the time of surgery, they might also meet with a radiation oncologist. The role of radiation in the treatment of breast cancer is to kind of mop up what the surgeon might have left behind, mm -hmm. microscopic cancer cells that somehow remained inside the breast. Um, and usually as part of breast cancer treatment, people meet with a medical oncologist like myself. Um, and our, even for early stage? Even for early stage. So you're, you're exactly right to point out that many times people come to my office and say, I don't even know why the heck I'm here. And you say, I don't know either, right? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> you don't do that. <laughs> Not usually. <laughs> um, but the, the, the role of the medical oncologist is a little different than the role of the surgeon and the radiation oncologist. The surgeon, the job of the surgeon is to take the cancer out make sure the lymph nodes are clear or get the lymph nodes that might contain cancer out. The role of the radiation oncologist is to mop up. But my job is to make a risk assessment of what's the, what's the risk that the cancer comes back, particularly outside of the breast. Even if they, it was a small cancer and they removed it? Even if. And even if they had radiation, that's still possible? It's still possible. And the reason that it's still possible is because cancer, by definition, can invade. And it can invade into the lymphatics to get to the lymph nodes, but it can also invade into the bloodstream, and it can go outside of the breast. And you can't tell that by looking at the tumor under the microscope? You can look at, at various features of the, of the cancer mm -hmm. and put that into a risk assessment. So but. we look at the grade, we look at some histologic markers, we look at the estrogen receptor, the progesterone receptor, the HER2, which is another cellular protein. Or um, 
and we can make a guess mm -hmm. as to what the risk is, but we can't know for sure. There's gotcha. no radiologic test, no blood test that tell us whether or not cancer cells have escaped. Um, depending on that risk assessment that, that I make uh, based on a number of models and my experience, um, we might talk about different types of systemic treatments. And these systemic treatments are things that go everywhere in the body to wipe out any cancer cells that might have escaped before they have a chance to set up shop and grow. Mm. Um, systemic treatments come in a variety of types. Um, in uh, probably most people think of chemotherapy as say. being, uh, <laughs> I see you've done this before, Steve. Um, chemotherapy is, is medications, usually IV medications that go everywhere um, in the body, but have toxicities in and of themselves. But for other types of breast cancer, in fact, about three quarters of breast cancer, we also talk about endocrine therapy. Hormones. Hormones, and probably better called anti-hormones. Right, but I think a lot of the public calls it hormone therapy, right? Hormone therapy. Um, hormone blockers, is that what That's really what it is, yeah, uh -huh. a hormone blocker. Um, the reason we talk about hormone blockers is because about 75% of breast cancers express either the estrogen receptor and or the progesterone receptor. Estrogen and progesterone, I know you remember this, Steve. Female sex hormones, Female right? sex hormones. Okay. Um, produced by the ovaries, but also made even after menopause, um, when the ovaries no longer function, produced in women by the adrenal glands, by fat cells. So women have, and men too, but women have estrogen and progesterone in their bodies. And the estrogen and progesterone receptors are kind of like, uh, I describe them as baseball gloves, and they see circulating circulating female hormones, estrogen and, and progesterone, they catch them, huh. they take them into the cell and use them as fuel. And so cancers that have the estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor can be thought of as being fueled by hormones. So they, they grow more. They grow more. They can grow more. And so you can imagine that blocking the estrogen receptor would also be an effective way of quote, starving breast cancer. Okay. So these endocrine therapies, these hormone blockers, these medications um, prevent breast cancer cells from seeing the hormones that they need to survive um, and are a pivotal part of the treatment of early stage estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor positive breast cancer. For, so for the subset that has these baseball gloves, right? <laughs> yes. And not for the people who don't. Right. For okay. people that, that are ER or PR negative. The tumors. They're tumors. The tumors. Right? Okay. Correct. Yes. Have these uh, receptors. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. Um, the problem with these hormone therapies, these uh, endocrine therapies, the, the good part is that it's a pill. Um, and people generally like pills better than they like IV chemotherapy. Um, but the problem with these pills is that they have some potential toxicities or side effects. And women, uh, the, the duration of treatment for most women is at least five years. Sometimes in some women we talk about longer than five years. We might talk about 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, so five years of a pill for a lot of women who aren't accustomed to taking medication, it's a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, side effects can, can include 
Uh, just to give you an example of what some of these medicines are, tamoxifen is probably the one that most women uh, have heard of before. But we also use medications called aromatase inhibitors. They're and, stronger, right? Sort of? Uh, not so much they're stronger. They have a different mechanism okay. of action. So they work a little differently. Um, they are a little bit more effective in the treatment of breast cancer. Um, you might have heard of drugs called letrozole or anastrozole. Every drug has multiple names. We do that to be as confusing as possible. Um, Letrozole or Famara is the brand name. Anastrozole or Arimidex. I was going to say I've heard of Arimidex. Arimidex. Faslodex. I've heard of. Faslodex is another. uh, It's a different type of medication. Oh, gotcha. Not typically used in the treatment of early stage breast cancer. Okay. But um, Faslodex is also a shot. I thought so. Yeah. But tamoxifen or the aromatase inhibitors are pills. Some of the side effects of these medications, people can get hot flashes, um, changes in their sex drive, changes in their mood. Well, with with tamoxifen, not usually uh, some menopause-like symptoms. With the aromatase inhibitors, definitely. So it's got to be hard for a young woman in particular. Very hard. Um, With uh, with more advanced breast cancer in young women. We often suppress the ovaries, putting women into immediate menopause. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be really hard to, to tolerate. It can really affect a woman's quality of life. It can affect uh, her day-to-day activities. Hot flashes, joint pains can, yeah. can be problematic. It can affect her relationships with sure. a significant other and her sex drive and her sex life and her her uh, relationship. In I mean, I can respect. imagine because in postmenopausal women, we often give back estrogens, but I can't imagine you would do that in this case. Right? It's something that we try to steer away from. Uh, there are in, there are occasions where we sometimes use topical formulations of estrogen, right. but uh, we do try to stay away from that because estrogen sure. could fuel the cancer. Wow! So these these uh, side effects can be really really problematic for a lot of women, which actually is a nice segue into. My research. How you're curing people with texting. Well, I don't know. I don't know so much about curing, but one of the big problems with the treatment of endocrine receptor or endocrine sensitive cancers is keeping people on these medications for the prescribed amount of time, um, for five years, for example, um, because of the toxicities and because a lot of women aren't accustomed to taking medication on a daily basis. Well, especially if it's making you feel bad especially if it's making you feel bad. So one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is how we use technology, how we use our cell phones, how we use text messaging, how we use the internet um, to improve healthcare delivery. Um, Over the last few years, I've been working on an intervention. We call it beta text. Beta stands for breast cancer endocrine therapy adherence. Did you make that up? I did. Oh, wow. I'm very proud. (laughs) Um, The beta text intervention uh, sends text messages to patients on their cell phones, and then they can respond back. And those messages that they text back are received by their care team. Um, So, for example, you might receive a daily text saying, did you remember to take your medication today? Or a weekly text, are you having side effects from your medicine? And if you are having side effects, how severe are these side effects? Um, And you might be asked 
uh, a little more infrequently, what barriers are you experiencing to taking your medication regularly? these responses are then received back by the clinical team who can act on them. If you note a substantially severe side effect, well, we can call you and and address things with you. So if you're having really bad hot flashes, well, there are a lot of behavioral modifications that we can talk about. Identifying triggers. For some women, it's alcohol. Other women, spicy food, um, chocolate. Unfortunately, no. Yes, um, could could trigger side effects um, such as hot flashes. But there are other things that we can do as well. There are um, prescription medications. Anti- a couple of antidepressants have can decrease hot flashes. And we could talk about all of these things on the phone before your next follow up appointment, so mm-hmm. that you're not suffering um, over a long period of time, months before your next visit. So the premise of this of beta text and of this study is that by by acting on side effects and acting on problems in real time or in close to real time, that we're going to be able to keep people feeling better and therefore on their medication longer, which will improve their ultimate outcome. We know that women, when they stop their medication before the the five years, that that the cancer outcomes are not as good. Mm. The cancer could could come back. Um, so it's like your mother nudging you. It's a little bit like that. I mean, I think it's it's really improved communication. I mean, fathers uh, can nudge too. I want to make that clear. Yeah, but women are better at it. Well, <laughs> in general, yes, maybe. Um, but the the uh, improved communication and improved engagement with with between patients and their providers could really make a substantial impact in their overall outcome and their their treatment and their lives. So this is something that we've piloted here. Um, I have a number of patients. We had 100 patients enroll in our pilot study here at Yale. Wow. Um, and now we're going to be rolling it out across the country uh, through one of the cooperative groups. Um, to test whether we can make this more of a national uh, endeavor. And then hopefully, um, within the next year or so, actually perform the gold standard, a randomized clinical trial where we compare patients who get the intervention to those who don't and see how much of an improvement there is. Dr. Sarah Mugalian is an assistant professor of medicine and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.